All right. Uh, welcome to the Pulling the Threads podcast. Today, I will be interviewing Ben Wagonmaker. Is that how you say your last name? Yeah, Wagonmaker. Wagonmaker. Um, was your your ancestor, did, did they make wagons? I mean, well, I'm sure they did probably six or seven probably. generations ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we connected on a couple of the forums um, on Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. and you're currently going through a process of conversion. Um, and so, yeah, we're just going to kind of do a interview. Um, do you want to kind of give a little bit of a background on yourself? Um, first, just kind of like, um, what you do, where you're at and kind of how you come to this. Sure. Sure. Of course. Um, I'll start by saying that, of course, um, they say there's nothing new under the sun. So I'm sure that some of the things I'll share somebody out there can relate to it, even if it's just one person. If there's something I say that you can't relate to, that's fine. Um, but uh, someone else will probably relate to it. So that being said, um, my background is I come from a very, very uh, Christian background. My parents, going back several generations, uh, came from the established uh, church tradition and my mom came from the baptist church tradition her dad my maternal grandfather was actually a baptist minister for a time and uh, i grew up in the uh, baptist church and i went to a baptist school from k to 12 uh, that means we had um, compulsory chapel um, every week regularly and we had compulsory bible classes where we studied the bible on an academic level for 13 years. And so I was very uh, biblically literate from an early age where we had to study the Bible, not just read it. And we actually were encouraged to memorize not just verses, but chapters, entire chapters. I remember I told, and that was uh, part of the standard um, education of what we did in the Baptist church. They were very heavy on um, the scriptures. And of course, I knew in, at least in my mind, I knew the Bible as good or better than a lot of people who went to seminary or went to Bible school after they graduated high school. But of course, in a standard Christian mindset, knowing the Bible, as it were, in air quotes, means knowing the New Testament and knowing the parts of what we call, they call, the Old Testament as much as only to the extent that it confirms what the New Testament says. So basically, like any good Christian, I knew about the Torah, but I only really only knew what the New Testament says about the Torah. I didn't really know the Torah itself, even though it was in my Bible the whole time. Because um, as lots of people who grew up in a similar background know, um, the New Testament is considered uh, the primary it's that's considered the primary revelation and the old testament was basically this mysterious thing that can only be interpreted with the light um, of the new testament revelation and so that's kind of how i grew up in the baptist church and i that was my background until i was an early until i was a young adult and then i actually became a pentecostal and so um, that was actually a very dramatic change going from Baptist to Pentecostal in the sense that it was the same Bible, but it was a very different application of a lot of the same, um, a lot of the same teachings. Um, to make a very long story short, parents were very concerned 
for me. And of course, Pentecostals tend to be concerned about Baptists and vice versa. And of course, as you and I both know, there are over 40,000 Christian denominations and they're all concerned about each other's soul. So anyway, I was caught up in that for a while. And in uh, my Pentecostal part of my journey, um, I discovered really good church music. One thing, I mean, say what you will about Pentecostal churches, they have excellent music. They A lot of them have um, rock bands. They have bands, they have good music um, mixes. They have light shows, especially the mega churches. And I visited a couple of mega churches in, in my time. And I actually, I, I got caught up to that. I was um, a church musician for years before that, but in the Baptist church, it was not quite as exciting because it's usually a piano or an organ, or at least it was at that time. And then when I um, became Pentecostal, I actually joined a, my first worship band as a keyboard player and really enjoyed it. I was a worship leader for over 20 years. When my wife and I met, we were both worship leaders. And of course, she comes from the same background I have, uh, that, I, that I came from. Her parents were both Christians going back um, a while. Her siblings are Christian. My siblings are Christian. Her cousins are Christian. My, my cousins are Christian. And so it's very deeply anchored in both my wife and I's um, journeys. Now, that pretty much brings me up to date up until last year. Okay. Uh, part of uh, so I kind of want to ask some questions. Sure. I, I, you know, I don't want to move too fast through everything. Um, one, um, I'm going to ask some questions based on what you said. One, you said you were biblically literate. Mm -hmm. um so you had studied so the new testament you're reading you know the context the whole chapter not just the verse absolutely and yet your view of the old testament was more reading verses maybe that you saw in the new testament or where you felt like the verses confirmed the new testament but you had you you had not yet started reading the old testament and looking at the whole chapter context yet that is pretty much it. And that is how a lot of biblically literate Christians operate. Um, they're biblically literate to the point where they read the New Testament, and they require a lot of um, integrity when they read the New Testament. It has to be in a context. And I was actually um, taught um, to study um, theology from the standpoint of, and, and this is something that is carried, um, that I've carried into Judaism with me, is there is a principle of let everything be established out of the mouths of two or three witnesses. And even a Jewish law, that's when someone is punished or accused of um, breaking a commandment under Jewish law, they need to, there needs to be witnesses. And so theologically speaking, I was taught that every doctrinal point should be established out of the mouths of two or three witnesses. And so if you, what that means is that if you see one isolated verse that seems to confirm a weird theory, you can't just make a doctrine, you can't run and make a doctrine out of one possible interpretation of one verse. If it's going to be authoritative in, as a doctrine, it has to be established out of at least two or three sources within the Bible. And of course, in the Christian context, it would be in the New Testament. Now, in Judaism, I'm looking at um, taking the same principle, taking the Peshat, or the obvious interpretation of a meaning, and if it can be um, established out of two or three um, verses in the Tanakh, then I'm totally comfortable uh, seeing it as a doctrine, something that's very foundational, something that could be uh, a rule, not the exception. And so that's kind of how I was taught. And um, that was actually a very sound practice that I've, I've actually, that I've actually uh, carried over into Judaism with me.
Now, so, I mean, that's very interesting because if you apply the three witness uh, the uh, method you're talking about to the mm -hmm. Old Testament, now a lot of these passages that Christians use to say Jesus was a suffering servant or the various things in the Tanakh, they start to unravel because you don't have a consistency of witnesses that say the same thing. You have a verse that one, they're relying on a Greek Septuagint translation, not a Hebrew translation. So therefore it's already lost its meaning from the original. And mm -hmm. then they're stringing verses together. But if you're looking at the whole chapter, the context is different. It's maybe speaking about Israel, not an individual. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you were to apply that, three witness to so so kind of my question is so how did because i like in bible college i learned exegesis hermeneutics mm -hmm. and we learned about the proper context of a passage and stuff mm -hmm. and of course they applied it to the new testament but as a child myself i had re read the tanakh twice in the new testament once and i always had problems with the new testament and um even though i was raised you know because my mom became a jehovah's witness i was raised in that and then like you, I went into a Pentecostal experience and then Messianic before converting to Judaism. Um, mm. But there were, yes, there were things that um, stuck with me. The exegesis, the hermeneutics, uh, mm. trying to see what's in the passage, understanding to whom is being spoken to, mm. where, what, the why, the how, all this stuff. Now, those methods helped me to like look into the passage deeper. But again, um, like even in my in Bible college, they they briefly mentioned uh, the document hypothesis regarding the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if they really got into. I don't think they ever got into textual criticism when it came to the New Testament. Maybe in passing, um, but the textual criticism, looking at how documents made, you know, and looking into like the who, what, why, where, and how, and the fullness of the passage is something that I always took when I was looking at passages. How did, I guess, did this play into your starting to look at the this, the New Testament use of the Tanakh? Mm -hmm. um, I prefer the term Tanakh over Old Testament. Uh, how did it start changing like your view of either the New Testament or Christian use of the Tanakh? And... Okay. Well, I think there's two different ways to look at this. And I'm going to start with um, going back to my Christian mindset. You know, I'm going to speak for the way I used to see, and I'm not going to suppose that Christians still see it this way or any other Christian views it this way. This is how I, when I was a Christian, viewed it. Using the three witness rule, the New Testament played very heavily better if the Old Testament mentioned something once. Okay. In that context, if the Old Testament, which we now call the Tanakh, I now call the Tanakh, but I use the Old Testament talking in, of my old uh, life. But what I used to call the Old Testament, if there is just one verse that the New Testament repeated twice, to me, that was sufficient as the three witnesses. So if uh, Isaiah 53 was mentioned, you know, and they don't even meant it's it's allegorical. <laughs> and it's the funny thing is allegory by definition is not clear. But people think it's clear and it's clearly X when it's really not X at all. But uh, that's kind of the way they see it. If the New Testament interprets um, a Tanakh passage as X, then to a Christian, it's X and nothing else because the New Testament says so. 
because that is their word of God. So that that plays heavily into their three witness rule, at least how I understood it back in the time. Now, fast forward to when the Tanakh started changing for me. Um, fast forward to last year. Up until the point of the beginning of last year, I had been a lifelong Christian, and I was still a worship leader at my church. But I had started reading Biblical Hebrew and learning Biblical Hebrew. And so my focus was Tanakh, 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 less New Testament. And the more I read the Tanakh, the more I, I saw the discrepancies, the more I saw the eternal nature of God's covenant with Israel and how it was irrevocable and, you know, frankly, Eternal means eternal. It's not replaceable. And this might seem like a very small detail, even to you or to anyone else. But to me, it was a very large detail to me, just the idea that in the New Testament, when Jesus claims to be the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, that's, an ex that's a claim of exclusive access to God. And that bothered me. It bothered me that he would say that he had exclusive access to God when God had an eternal covenant that existed previous to him. He was around before he was in the portrait. So, and that bothered me so much that, you know, I finally had to reconcile the idea that both cannot simultaneously be true. One has to be true and the other is untrue. So after probably several weeks of, um, I guess, painful introspection, I decided that the New Testament was not true. And I decided to just follow Torah after that and uh, never looked back. Now, I don't know if you want me to keep going or if you have any questions to clarify. I mean, uh, you know, if you... Try to keep track of where you're going and your thoughts. I do have some questions and stuff here and there that I may interject. But um, so for me, the the three witness thing would mm -hmm. require it to be consistent within the Tanakh. You have to have three consistent witnesses in the Tanakh right. for that to be something you can consider if there was an additional revelation or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. I find it highly dubious. Uh, to say there's one verse in the Tanakh and there's two to three confirmations in the New Testament. Well, honestly, to me, that would invalidate the New Testament by the simple fact that it's not first confirmed in the text they use for support. Right. So if the if the New Testament wants to, you know, which I I don't subscribe to it as inspired or inerrant. It's a human mm -hmm. document that right. the full surviving comp copies we have are fourth century and beyond made me fragmentary before that we have no original attestation of first century whatever may have or did not exist if it even existed so i mean i don't take it as a true infallible word of god right uh as it's not it's a human document that we know has had multiple layers of redaction right. um but all that aside if we're going to discuss the merits of whether based on its own testimony one of the things that I did when I was converting to from because my mom became a Jehovah's Witness when I was like four. That's how I was raised. When I was deciding to leave, one of the first things I did was like, well, let me test the thing against itself to see if it holds mm -hmm. to be true. Because I was hearing, you know, from 
uh, apolo Christian apologist that's a cult and there's this stuff. And so I started researching within its own movement within itself to see if it was true to itself. Um, and so that I, I started looking into their translation of the Bible, the, the Greek and English interlinear, you know, mm -hmm. trying to, you know, study the Greek words and, and what was actually in the, the Greek text they used for their, theirs. And I found mm -hmm. inconsistency, inconsistencies there. So, you know, kind of searching deeper, but something should hold true within itself. When you find inconsistencies yep. within itself, then you start have to question it. And I think maybe that's kind of a, a similar experience you had when you start to get into the Hebrew and you're starting to see mm -hmm. some inconsistencies. Um, I, I genuinely feel like if you want to start with, the, you say the Old Testament's your foundation, um, then you need to find a consistent theme that can generally be recognized by you know, the average unlearned mind, it doesn't have to be complicated, you know, strange math, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracy. Well, you know, it says this vaguely, it says this vaguely, this allegory, and then it paints this picture. No, there needs to be three clear witnesses, at least, for mm -hmm. there to be a continuing. And and if even, you know, if, uh, you know, if you move into, say, uh, Messianic or other Christians who kind of try to say, um that it's grafting in this mm -hmm. this kind of weird thing well you can't graft into something if you disconnect and become something else like that's right. you're not grafted in at all you, you, if you don't follow the existing revelation and have a consistency within that and whatever you're doing you're not even grafted in you're off in some other you know existential realm you're not in that same realm so i i i feel like just for me like mm -hmm. definitely that that consistent theme of yeah minimum three clearly like easily understandable you would need um but yeah um you know you had made the comment the old testament confirms only in reading the verses whereas the context might you know have a different meaning were there any passage passages specifically like in the tanakh uh, you did uh, mention the eternal covenant. Were there any other passages when you were studying biblical Hebrew that started to stick out to you as maybe what the text is saying versus what the New Testament or Christianity is saying uh, didn't line up with what you had been led to believe in your Baptist or Pentecostal uh, experience? Um, actually, nothing really particular. Just the main passage that bothered me is the one that I mentioned earlier, John 14, 6. That's the one that made me derail. That's the one that derailed everything for me. Because if John 14, 6 is untrue, then that is a central teaching of what they call the New Testament. And if the central teaching of the New Testament is untrue, then the New Testament itself is untrue. And really, that is the one single passage that derailed my Christianity. That's the single passage. And um, other than that, I mean, since then, I've I've noticed other inconsistencies, of course. Uh, let's say in the book of Acts, you see two very different, even in the same book, it's it's funny how, you know, you look at this in retrospect and you see that in Acts, I think it was Acts 9, um, Paul supposedly has his private vision that no one else witnesses. And there's Acts 9 and there's Acts 22. And don't quote me on this because I don't remember which is which, but in one of the chapters, the the men who were with him 
saw nothing, but they heard a voice. Mm. But a few chapters later, they heard nothing, but they saw a light. Yeah. And it's in the same book. And come on. I mean, fiction writers are held to a higher standard than that. Right. The inconsistency is, yeah. It's crazy because of a fiction writer, I mean, J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter, if she had something remotely that flagrant Mm -hmm. in, in an inconsistency in her writing, she would be roasted mercilessly online. And that's, I mean... Like, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that fiction writers are held to a higher standard. Mm. And, you know, if you want to accept something as the word of God, come on, have a higher standard, at least than that of a fiction writer. Right. I mean, it is fiction, but, you know, that's mm-hmm. another yeah. story. I mean, classic literature, <laughs> classic literature, classic literature. literature. but yeah, you know, but still, I mean, the, the uh, editorial standards at the time may not have been the same. They didn't have the same access to information that we do. Um, and so it was a lot easier to pass off a lie as a truth back then. Yeah, there was no uh, fact checkers or whatever back the, back in the day. You know, people couldn't just Google whatever just to make sure it, it was true. Right. But uh, even then, I mean, there were so many inconsistencies. And, and even when I was a Christian, there were known inconsistencies between the and again, it goes back to the classic Christian argument, which is why I find laughable these days. They say that, you know, in a court of law, if you have four different witnesses, it's normal and expected for there to be certain inconsistencies between the stories. And if they are exactly the same, it's evidence of collusion. And, you know, that's fine in a court of law. But when you're talking about people that are inspired by God, again, there should be a higher standard. There shouldn't, I mean... I can understand, you know, some people remembering certain details that others didn't remember. But when people remember the same details very differently within the word of God, it just seems like that's not a high enough standard for the word of God. And especially when there's inconsistencies in the same book, like I mentioned in the book of Acts. Well, but that's a very problematic statement. Like, okay, let's circle back. And that's, you know, there's these claims that are made and it's like there's cognitive dissonance going on. But Mm -hmm. for a judge to find somebody guilty, there's got to be clear evidence that, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. So -hmm. if you have four testimonies that are not consistent, they rise reasonable doubt. So you have in a court of law, we're kind of going back to three. You know, if you have multiple witnesses, you need to have at least three that have the base, the same basic consistent theme that beyond a reasonable doubt, we can say okay, that's most likely what happened. And maybe the fourth one has, you know, a different story and we can't explain it, but you still have to have two to three people. I, I, you know, when I remember looking at law stuff a, a long time ago, but you have to have a consistency of testimony that will leave you without reasonable doubt. If you have four people mm-hmm. who give you reasonable doubt, you can't find somebody guilty. So even that analogy undermines like if you really look into it it's like it's like we hear these things and it's like and and i i fell for it back in the day the apologists like you know um their arguments and you're like okay you don't really critically look at it and go wait well what what is needed to find somebody guilty or innocent right oh there's Mm -hmm. multiple testimonies but to find somebody guilty there's got to be consistency of testimony that's beyond reasonable doubt. And so I don't know. It's it the I fell for these when I when I was in the Christian world. I didn't critically examine them and go, 
oh, wait a minute. That's mm -hmm. actually kind of silly if you think about it. You you hear, hear what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. And you know something, if but going back to the court example, if you have the same witness contradict himself, that raises even more doubt. Right. And so Book of Acts, they, they're contradicting themselves in the same book with the same author. And so again, fiction writers are held to a higher standard. And so with that, I, in my mind, the case is closed. It's it's yeah. fiction. Nothing. I more. mean, and so now as we literature. look at it, go ahead. It's just classic literature. Yeah, well, like the Quran, yeah, gonna, like that's where else. I was going to go with it. As we look at it, you know, it is literary fiction, uh, you know, Greek literature, and it follows the traditional uh, Greek motifs, um, you know, the the epic story and there, there are different elements play, pulled in it. It seems like it may be pulling from four different types of Greek literature. Um, there may be, you know, if you get into historical Jesus scholarship and the Q hypothesis, there might be uh, oral sayings of a guy who existed, nothing like mm -hmm. what's in the new Testament, but these oral sayings were there. And on all you have for most people who look at the first century is, there were probably maybe oral sayings of this guy. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, in the second century, the first written tradition we have is Marcion finds uh, Paul's letters and his proto gospel he wrote. And then you start having other gospels appear in written form. Of course, mm -hmm. Christians say they existed in the first century. There's the oral, the, the wording. It sounds like something that was written in, you know, the first century. Yet we we have first text Marcy, and then we start having other gospels and epistles appearing, and then this textual tradition just becomes this huge thing by the fourth century. Um, but it's highly dubious that there was any of that grand story in the first century. Maybe sayings, okay, sure, maybe, but then the story has changes, and that's where we have the layers of redaction in the New Testament. Yeah. We have different communities with different views of what his life was. And so it was kind of a process of grand narrative making around this guy who may have made some sayings um, mm -hmm. until they have a kind of, I say, government conceived plot to make it into a cohesive theme by the fourth century. But that's not really where we're going to go today on this, but you know, if there was a guy, I, I can't say that the grand, you know, narrative story that comes out is what happened. You know, there's no, right. you know, it's, it's again, it's written decades and centuries later. So it's kind of written in a way that's unfalsifiable because you can't go back and you can't go, well, what was said, what was done? You don't have contemporary witnesses. And so it, it's pretty dubious. Right. Um, Sorry to go on a tangent. I kind of want to circle back to. A uh, couple questions on your journey. Mm -hmm. um, one, you said that you went into Pentecostalism for a while. Oh, yeah. um, what branch of Pentecostalism were you involved with? Well, it was um, most recently. It was what they call the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada because I moved to Canada as a young adult. Okay. And that's uh, they're they're kind of related to the Assemblies of God, right? Yeah, they are related to the Assemblies of God. Because in the I West. stayed in a hotel in lucerne switzerland that was owned by them when i did some missionary work when i was a okay. christian right yeah they have a lot of mission organizations that go around the world um so i think youth with a mission ywam is one of the organizations that goes all over the world especially to switzerland 
Yeah, actually. I yeah, I did it. I did a, a traveling performing play, you know, through like Western Europe that um but it well it was well, it was an assemblies of God thing, but they they were kind of working with some of uh the the Pentecostal assemblies of Canada. Yeah, before I moved to Canada, I was I was affiliated with the AOG, what they used to call the AOG, the Assemblies of God. Mm. Okay. So it was the classic Pentecostal, you know, speaking in tongues, um, prophecy, that type of thing, laying on of hands. And, you know, there's a lot of the mega churches you see, you know, on TV where people lay hands and they fall down and, you know, been there, done that. Can't say I'm proud of it, but uh, I've been there. I, I know what it's about. Um. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that kind of the you know, to talk about, you know, similarities and journeys and questions about it. Um, so the thing is in, well, I've got two questions, a statement and, and two questions. And I'll kind of start with like the question, kind of get in a statement and then let you answer. Mm -hmm. But um, one thing is a lot of the Pentecostal assemblies of God, they, of course, they have miracles laying out on hands, speaking in tongues is big, but also I've always seen a, familiarity with some of the teaching about festivals and the tabernacle and hebraisms sprinkled in um so one of my questions is how much of that was sprinkled into your pentecostal experience um and then the other one is the emotionalism and the use of rising and swelling music uh you know to make people excited uh mm -hmm. how much as a former worship leader were you aware of um you know like john wimber the founder of the, mm -hmm. the vineyard church talked yeah. about power evangelism that you don't preach until you get them into a certain state through worship that they're receptive to the word now that's how he says it but the rising swelling of music the emotionalism you know passionate preaching calling people forward to be touched the social and peer pressure of you got to fall down to get a get touched from god almost kind of thing like there's a an intense there's a it's it's intentional it's coerced and at times mm -hmm. cooperative that you know you're being worked up into this state that you're more receptive to the word and the other one is more receptive to giving money um how much are you aware of that in your experience totally completely aware of that that was as someone who was a worship leader, um, I actually knew of the power of emotional states. And emotional manipulation is a huge thing. They don't call it emotional manipulation because it just sounds too carnal to them. They want it to make they want to make it sound spiritual. But they would say um, they wouldn't even call it spiritual manipulation, they would call it spiritual movement. Yeah. And so the emotions help tap into um you know your soul you know and, and of course now in judaism the soul and the spirit are synonymous it's the same thing whereas as a christian i thought there were two separate things it's kind of an odd the theological theological point that we don't have time to get into <laughs> excuse me but um when you are able to get people emotionally engaged that's when they are more their soul opens up their soul is going to it's going to 
whatever you share in that state of emotional swelling, to use your words, um, whatever you say is going to be much more quickly, much more readily, much more deeply without being questioned. So what we would do is the job of a worship team is to basically make sure that people are in an atmosphere where they are emotionally open and ready to receive readily without question. And of course, no one will say that under oath. That's essentially what they're doing, is making sure that people are emotionally engaged so that they, whatever the preacher says is going to be received openly, readily, with very little question, because their emotions are open. And when your emotions are open, it's amazing how, how deeply you can accept something as truth. And uh, so, yeah, I definitely was aware. And, you know, there's a very real truth to how emotions can affect you. When you have music that moves your emotions and it makes you open, not only to the words of the pastor, but to divine intervention. And when I say that, I will say, and of course, there will be skeptics. I've seen the miraculous. I have witnessed people say that they got healed while I played piano or while my wife sang. And they'll say, I, I was this way. No, I'm not this way. Praise God. And, you know, I, I still to this day, don't doubt that that actually happened because I've realized with time that when God gives you a miracle, it's not to pat you on the back and say, you believe the right thing, so I'm going to bless you. When God gives someone a miracle, it's because he's merciful. It's not because you have the right faith statement. It's not because you're one in one of the 40, you're in the proper denomination out of the 45,000 other denominations, so I'm going to touch mm. you. So you can believe something totally wrong about God and God will still be merciful towards you. And he can still give you a miracle because he's merciful, not because you uh, deserve it. Well, I, I, I have a completely different perspective and I'd push back on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I don't disagree in psychosomatic healing. Mm -hmm. I don't disagree. Mm -hmm. So there are Hindus like, there was a Hindu guy doing kind of like this laughing revival thing. It's kind of where right. the laughing revival got its roots in Christianity came from a Hindu thing. And he would do similar things, preaching and um, people were laughing and people experienced healing. Okay. So people experiencing psychosomatic symptoms of healing mm -hmm. is not exclusive to Christianity. No, it's not. Uh, it's, it's not exclusive to a religion. And, it would, let, it would it would take a really long discussion, but there is a majority of the things that people are treated for by doctors are psychosomatic. They're mentally caused illnesses. Mm -hmm. A majority of the things we go to doctors for is stress related. Mm -hmm. uh, stress can increase anxiety, asthma, depression, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I, I think it's close to 80% of all the stuff that's treated is mentally related stuff. And in psychology, you talk about a moment of catharsis. So mm -hmm. whatever that point of catharsis is for you, mm -hmm. um, whether it's, you know, 
a Hindu doing their prayer, whether it's Benny Hinn throwing a cloth at your face uh, and mm -hmm. you falling out, if in your mind you believe that that relieved what is a psychosomatic symptom of, uh, you know, a trauma or a stress in your mind, you believe that relieves it, then your body, even sometimes when you don't actually have a complete healing, because sometimes your mm -hmm. body will tell you you're okay mm -hmm. and you'll start to feel better. So I would disagree with the statement that it was God or divine intervention. While that mm -hmm. is possible, I would say that a majority of, and because I've been part of a lot of healing revivals and missionary mm -hmm. work, and I've never seen a true miracle. I've never seen a person in a wheelchair crippled and walk. I've never seen a blind man see. I've mm -hmm. seen, I feel like 100% were psychosomatic things, things that could have been treated mm -hmm. with antibiotics, things that could have been treated with proper mental health and proper uh, emotional, mm -hmm. you know, stability. Um, I don't, I've never seen a true miracle. Yeah, that's, and I don't doubt that. I mean, with someone else, when someone else recounts what happened to them, there's no way to do, know for sure. Mm -hmm. And of course, people are going to be skeptical, but I'll say that there was one point where I had a lump somewhere and it went away. Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe it was God, maybe it wasn't. But either way, if it was God, it's not because I believed the right thing. God can show his mercy to anybody in any religion. Yeah. Well, so I, anyway. I don't want to spend too much time on that, you know. Right. Um, but your other question about messianic yeah. influence, um, there was a little bit, honestly. Um, and it was actually quite recent. Um, toward the beginning of my Pentecostal experience, there was no Hebrew roots influence at all. Until about maybe eight years ago, um, there was a French-speaking church that was that my wife and I helped minister at sometimes. And they invited us to do music, ministry, and translation because we're in a French-speaking environment. Our, our church was French-speaking. Our community was French, still is French-speaking. And so we were involved in a French-speaking church for 20 years. My wife still is, in fact. And so one of the things about ministry in Quebec is you invite speakers that speak English and don't speak French, you need a translator. So they requested music ministry and translation, which my wife is excellent at. So they invited this minister from New Zealand who was a Messianic. And that was my first experience with a Messianic believer. And of course, I don't want a Messianic Jew. I probably would have in the past, but as of course, I know that Halakha does not call them Jews, they're Christians. He's a Messianic believer. So. Yeah. So anyway, that was my first experience with a Messianic. Um, and that was my first experience with hearing their message that supersessionism is wrong. And that's highly ironic. Very. Very ironic because um, in my road to Judaism, I've had several discussions with Messianics in the meantime. And they all believe in supersessionism to a degree, even though they yes. say they don't. Well, they, they do, but... They, they do, they, but they don't. They, well, they, they well, believe in they, it differently. Well, well, let me get there first. But they do, but it's highly convoluted because mm -hmm. they they don't want to get into the antinomianism of Paul, where he does away with the law. So now we got to kind of keep some of the law, but and they want to get rid of the things that lead to anti-Semitism. But the juxtaposition of what they believe is that 
you have to become a completed Jew and you're not a completed Jew until you believe in the, their uh, fictional savior. Um, but that means if I'm completed there, I wasn't completed as a Torah observant Jew. Therefore, exactly. it's still supersessionism, but exactly. they have couched it in a little nicer words. Um, you know, and I was talking to Rabbi Tovia Singer, and he even points out that they they eschew supersessionism. But I'm like, they call themselves completed Jews. It still is. It's just, you know, it's it, it's the same thing by a different name. Exactly, and it's very, you know, it's it's devious. The whole yeah. thing. I mean, they say, you know, you know, the whole thing. As of course you know, it, it's an offshoot of the Baptist Church, and the guy that started Jews for Jesus, from which most messianic movements come. The guy that started Jews for Jesus was born into a Jewish family, a Reformed Jewish family. He became a Christian, decided to missionize Jews. That was his life mission. And so he changed his name to Moisha, changed his title to rabbi from pastor, and basically changed everything to make it look Jewish and sound Jewish, even though it wasn't. So it's the whole thing is just renaming everything so that it looks different, but it isn't different. It's basically... It's it's masking everything. It's disguising everything, and not being forthright and not being honest. It's all about dishonesty. It's not. It's avoiding saying the Bible because we don't want to freak out the Jews. We want to call it our holy text. We don't want to call it a church because that'll freak out the Jews. We want to call it a house of worship, and we don't want to call it the New Testament. That'll freak out the Jews. We want to call it the the Brit Hadashah, and so everything, and it's everything about it is just dishonest. We don't yeah. want to call it what it really is. We want to hide its true identity under a Jewish um, yeah. piece of clothing. And so um, Wolves they don't use the word supersessionism. Yeah, they don't want to call it supersessionism because that freaks out the Jews. They yeah. call it something else, even though an astute Jew or third-party observer will see it as, for what it is, it is supersessionism, as you've yeah. described, because they see our faith as, you know, they see Torah observance as inadequate, incomplete, without belief in their Messiah, um, their divine Messiah, without whom we cannot be right with God, which is totally antithetical to Torah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it comes across as wolves in sheep's clothing. It's definitely cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. but it's Christians do it in every country that they try to do missions and they... They go into Africa or China. They try to adopt the dress and the culture and the lingual uh, missionaries when they go to Aboriginal villages. You know, they. Uh, I I remember hearing stories, reading about various missionaries flying into the jungles of the Amazon, uh, starting out when they learned the language and they would associate whatever the the late natives called their god. They would call their god but then they'd start to add in and explain jesus but it's very much what catholicism did at the beginning it's a very syncretic religion where it would blend these things together and like i feel like since the roots of you know christianity back to catholicism they would always blend things together mm -hmm. in, into something but it's a very deceptive practice um the thing that always stuck into my mind and was kind of a, a jux of my transition i was involved with um Dr. Raymond Gannon, he was part of Jewish Voice in the King Seminary. He was one of the ones who had founded a, a he, so he came out of the Assembly of God. He founded a Messianic congregation in the 70s or something like that in L.A. Because um, there's the there's the Baptist ones, and then there's the ones that kind of come from the Pentecostal background and come to the, the 
Messianic Jewish um, background. And um, anyways, he had talked about dressing up. And he's a Gentile who has not converted, but he talks about dressing up as, you know, more Orthodox than the Orthodox to convert him. And always like I was reading the the book by by uh, the the Reform Rabbi uh, Carol Harris Shapiro, who she was trying to study Messianic Judaism, and she called it cross dressing, dressing up in the name of the cross to convert people. And it always just sticks to my mind. But it's cultural appropriation. You're trying to take on the customs of a different people to pretend to be the people to get them to do what you do, and it's so disingenuous. Um, mm -hmm. You know, kind of to, to circle back a little bit. When we're talking about the emotionalism of Pentecostalism, the music and all that kind of stuff, for me, what was very healing when I came to conversion in the synagogue mm -hmm. was going to a synagogue service without instrumentation, without rising and swelling music, without mm -hmm. this compelling oratory and to come forward to have hands laid on to you and, and and in that moment where you feel good and you feel like things are happening now give me a bunch of money you know god wants you to tithe and if you give you'll be blessed it's, it felt so great to be in a place that one i'm doing something where i'm offering it to god and it's a service i'm giving him something where i'm not trying to get something back and for me what was healing and brought unity to my soul was the quietness of you know and and part of being part of that tradition where we're praying the same prayers around the world for the past you know a few thousand years you know i'm doing something that to repair my soul versus i'm here like heavenly daddy give me stuff you know mm -hmm. so that was very healing for my soul i mean what has been your transition how have you grappled with the you know the emotionalism the music the excitement of the concert the performance to now you're transitioning to you're going through a conservative conversion right right um now do they still have uh because there are there are variances you know i, I go to one that has you know more traditional service sometimes you have ones that uh, maybe friday night they'll play guitars or something like that but for the most part you know it's just people in a room a minion doing prayers mm -hmm. and offering them up to god like how is your transition from the excitement, the emotionalism, the concert to, you know, uh, Judaism. How has that been? Well, it's actually, um, it's, I'm glad you brought that up just because I do miss the music. You know, the Pentecostal churches have great music. and I kind of miss that, but I also appreciate the tranquility and the authenticity mm. of being there and not being emotionally manipulated. Yeah. And, but you know something? The whole emotional manipulation didn't really exist until I was a young adult and went into Pentecostalism. In the Baptist church, it was all about Bible, 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 and less about emotional manipulation and less about music. There was some music, but not as or some passionate preaching, but not as much of it. It was a lot of Bible study, Bible, 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 Bible. And so I had that balance that a lot of Pentecostals didn't have. And a lot of Pentecostals... Um, I'm just going to throw in a, a tangent for just a moment. Um, I'm not going to name who she is, but there was a, a woman that I know very well. And she would frequently say, God doesn't want your mind. He wants your heart. And that's very common in Pentecostal churches to believe that. But in my Baptist root in mind, I would say, well, God gave me both a mind and a heart. Why would he not want both? 
And of course, in Judaism, it's the same thing. God gave you both a heart and a mind. He wants both. But, you know, when you offer your heart, make sure it's sincere and not, you know, the product of emotional manipulation from, I don't know, a preacher that is preaching after some really beautiful music or whatever. So I offer God my heart, but it's not after a period of great rock music that has lifted my soul to the point where, you know, I'm ready to, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be excited and receive whatever God has for me. It's going to be something that, you know, it's going to be consensual, if we want to put it that way, on a mental level. And to me, I, I prefer that just because to me, the the mental level, the intelligence level is the bed from which my emotions are based. If I have an emotion, it's essentially, it's ultimately based on something that I believe to be true. So there's a foundation of intellect somewhere within that emotion. So to me, intellectual level is even more important than the emotional level. So I don't mind not having that emotional manipulation because when God feeds me through the Torah with my intellect, that intellect is going to be the basis from which my emotions are going to come in the future. And so um, whether or not I make a decision based on emotions or logic, um, to me, logic is is a more, I guess, a, I hate to say it this way, but it's, it's more logical because that's the basis for all my emotions. So I've learned to appreciate that over the last year or so of going to synagogue. You know, even though I'm tempted to miss the show, the music, the lights, um, I miss it on a level where, you know, I miss the fun aspect of that. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I do appreciate, I have a, a very deep appreciation for the intellectual stimulation that I get from reading the Parsha or having it read or chanted really in Hebrew, followed by the Haftarah in Hebrew and following along I can when I can't catch up with the Hebrew because they're reading so fast, you know, I can, you know, still feed my intellect by following along in English. And then that intellectual foundation, you know, is going to carry me, um, not only intellectual, intellectually, but emotionally. And uh, so I've learned to appreciate that. And I hope that explains, you know, I hope that adequately explains to you at least, um, the, I guess the transition from less emotion and more intellect and my appreciation of that change. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, you're essentially going to a rock concert who doesn't like to go to a rock concert with their, their favorite artists. I mean, right. It one, you are encouraged to put your hands up, put your all into it, to dance, to, to in a way express yourself. The, uh, I, I do martial arts. So Bruce Lee, you know, he said art of expressing yourself, expressing yourself honestly. So mm -hmm. you, you try to get people opened up, hands up, giving all themselves so there's a part of you even if you're giving yourself up to some imaginary that it feels good if i'm just like letting myself be right everybody wants acceptance whether or yeah. not um and, and you know so it's a it's offer of acceptance but it's got now when we get into and we're not going to do that today but you get into the theology and the foundation it's not there Right. But it feels good to open yourself up, to be free, to, you know, 
those experiences feel good. But it feels good when somebody does the same thing at a Beyonce concert or a Jay-Z concert. So it's not the the experience itself is not religious, though it's in a religious setting. But you're convinced by the people telling you from the stage it's religious, though I know personally that the the <laughs> Churches I went to were concerned about air conditioning because certain levels facilitated the Holy Spirit better than others, which was comedic to me. Just the thought of it put me on the floor like, God needs an air conditioning unit? Are you kidding uh -huh. me? You've uh -huh. got to be kidding me. Now, it, it, you know, it was enjoyable, but I enjoy a good concert, too. I mean, I, you know, so I, it's it's not that it's not. And yes, part of me is like, it'd be nice if maybe there was a a, a truly Jewish movement where Maybe they had elements of that. It would be kind of nice. But, you know, Halakha, when it comes to uh, playing instrument on Shabbat, you know, um, you know, the reform and conservative, they'll make room for it. Reform more than conservative uh, on that. But um, they they still tend to be a little traditional on their usage of music. Um, part of me is like, if we could blend a little bit of the vineyard music with, you know, conservative movement, it'd be a fun service. But... That's not traditionally the Jewish way. So I but it is it is enjoyable. Mm -hmm. But you know, I want to touch on something you said though. Cognitive emotive or cognitive behavior theory deals with like cognitive emotive theory. It's your thoughts lead to your emotions, lead to actions. Right. Now, when people get you to buy, bypass your thought, get into emotionalism, they can control your action. Whereas if it's a thought that leads to emotion, then you're more in control of your action. So uh, personally, I prefer to my emotions line up with my thought than be led into an emotional state to be led by another person. Um, I don't want to dwell too much on that because I kind of want to transition into uh, what's your experience been as you're you know, going through conversion um, when I was going through, I was doing various experiments on, you know, uh, keeping kosher, working on being Shomer Shabbat, uh, observance of the festivals. My rabbi, you know, he was a conservative rabbi. He had come to part of his Jewish experience was through the reconstruction movement. Um, but the shul itself was an independent minion, but my conversion was conversion, uh, conservative, um, but because it came from Reconstruction, it was more of a make Judaism your own and personalize it for yourself. And so we did all these experiments, kind of, it was kind of cool, kind of, uh, plus we did Musarts, kind of as a spiritual tradition I really enjoyed. Um, what has your experience been as your, you know, uh, you know, taking on kosher, Shabbat, like what, what has your experience been as you've been going through conversion? Got it. Um, I'm going to qualify what I'm about to say by saying working closely with my rabbi on this. Mm. And so people are going to probably disagree with um, a lot of how I see things or how I've been going about my conversion. But, um, you know, my um, Yiddishkeit, my conversion to a Jewish lifestyle is basically under supervision between uh, myself and my rabbi. And he and I are comfortable with the process that we have undertaken. Now, with that in mind, um, and I say it because there will be some critics of um, my journey, but, you know, I'm at peace with my journey and, you know, 
they have no bearing on my relationship, my covenant with God. So they can think whatever they want to. That being said, my rabbi was raised Orthodox. In a, he was raised in an Orthodox home, but he is conservative. And I believe he was, he's been conservative for, you know, several years, at least um, 20 years. And of course, our shul is conservative, egalitarian. Um, but of course, we are a little bit stricter in some areas, like the fact that you know, we don't have instrumentation on Shabbat services. And since he was raised Orthodox, he's very strict about, um, at least in shul, no cell phones on Shabbat. Don't take pictures in Shabbat on, on Shabbat on, in the shul. You know, very strict. When we have um, a meal after the service, it's always kosher. And of course, he will encourage all of his members to keep kosher in Shemir Shabbat to the best of their ability. Mm. Now, what that means for me is I live an hour away from my shul. Mm. First questions I asked him when I approached him for conversion is, is it a problem if I live an hour's drive away from shul? And he immediately told me that, well, the conservative movement since the 60s has allowed driving to and from shul on Shabbat and Yom Tov. Mm. Only, you know, you don't drive everywhere. You can drive to shul and back. Yeah. And so I live an hour's drive away. I drive to and from shul. So he is okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, the other thing is with um, keeping kosher. I told him that I live over an hour away from the nearest kosher butcher. You know, and I am part of an interfaith family at this point. My second question to him um, when I started talking to him about conversion was, is the problem that I have a non-Jewish wife? I've been married to my wife. At the time, it was a little more than 20 years. Now it's over 21 years. Mm. And um, he said, no, in his, in his shul, that's fine. Because um, with halacha, there is room for a single Jew to convert with no family who may or may not ever have Jewish kids. And so why there, should not there be room for a member of a couple? to convert by themselves who may or may not have Jewish kids. Um, so in his opinion, it's the same thing. He's had experience with converting one member of uh, a couple with a non-Jewish spouse in the past. He won't marry an interfaith couple, but he will allow one member of a couple to convert. So there's a difference there. So that's the case with me. And since my wife is still a devout Christian, uh, I am officially in an interfaith household. So that affects my Shemir Shabbat. It affects my Keshwalt keeping kosher. And so my um, journey, my journey to keeping kosher with my rabbi is basically do the best you can with what you have. And of course, do the best you can doesn't mean don't worry about it at all. No, it means that, you know, with, with the, within the bounds of Shalom Bais, since in any interfaith couple, Shalom Bais takes precedence. Shalom Bais is peace at home. And so if I try to impose kosher dishes, kosher cookware, kosher um, silverware in an interfaith household, and it affects Shalom Bayis, then I can't do it. I have to keep in mind Shalom Bayis. So with respect to Shalom Bayis in that environment, I keep kashrut to the point where I, you know, I'm no longer, um, I don't eat pork or shellfish, but I don't buy kosher meat because I live more than an hour away from the kosher butcher. And my rabbi's aware of that. He's okay with it. I don't have kosher cookware. I don't have kosher silverware, kosher dishes. My rabbi's aware. He's okay with that. 
you know, so I, I do my, what I can within the bounds of Shalom Bayis. If my wife is ever um, to the point where she's able, if she's comfortable with me only buying kosher meats, going an hour and a half to the kosher butcher, an hour and a half back, paying double the price, then it'll happen. But that's not where I'm at right now. So within the bounds of Shalom Bayis, um, I keep kosher to the best of those bounds, if that makes sense. Shemer Shabbat is basically the same thing. Um, I don't want to make waves with peace at home because basically, ultimately, I have to be a light at home. I have to make Judaism appear non-threatening to them. But the trick is without... I don't want to be completely kosher-free. You know, I don't want to be completely compromised. I have to say, okay, I want to at least do my part, do what I can that doesn't affect the household. I can at least be pork-free, shellfish-free without affecting the household. Mm-hmm. But um, in Shomer Shabbat, I can get away with not using electronic devices and have it not affect anybody. And, you know, that's so far, that seems to be working out so far. And again, Orthodox Jews are kind of probably pulling their ha- their hair out at me saying all this. <laughs> but yeah. where I'm at with my rabbi and me, and uh, as long as I am doing the best that I can, not putting it aside, but making a concerted effort to actually do it within the bounds of Shalom Bayis, then my rabbi's happy, I'm happy, and uh, that's that's where I'm at as far as Shalom Bayis and Kashrut and Shomer Shabbat. Okay. Um, I, I guess I was lucky when I went through conversion, my wife and son went with me, and mm-hmm. so we were able, you know, to transition to kosher dishes, and yeah. Um, you know, we we never lived close enough that we, we had to drive to shul. So, I mean, yeah. but conservative has accepted that, right. for, like you said, since the 60s. Um, so you try to keep kosher style. Uh, you yeah. don't eat pork. Have you stopped mixing milk and meat? Um, where I live, so Trader Joe's has kosher meats. There's a Ralph's over here that a kosher meat section. But then again, San Diego has a large Jewish population. Right. So I, I have an ease of access to kosher meats. Um, My city has a Jewish population of one. You? That I know of. Oh. There's nothing kosher. There's halal, but there's no kosher. Yeah. Within yeah. An hour Which, of, within an halal is not kosher. Right. But it's the closest thing, but it's not kosher. Yeah. Uh well they don't always drain the blood and salt the meats though sometimes they just bless yeah. the meat so the um it's not the same yeah, it's the closest it, thing but it's not kosher yeah. I realize it's not kosher uh, uh do you know how to uh, kasher uh your meats like you can, I do know how to but I've okay. I've spoken to um mm-hmm. people who do it for a living and they say if you buy non kosher meat there's no way to make it kosher even if you kasher it if you buy it non kosher Cashering it does not make it kosher. Um, I've always had access to to the meats, but I know that like they were telling me when I went through conversion that you can drain it and salt it and do it yourself. But you know, always an option. But as long as you're working with your rabbi and he's okay with things, um, yeah, everybody has their own journey. How does your wife feel about your uh, conversion? And she is growing more and more, uh, I guess, tolerant. I'll right. say passively tolerant. Um, she was very kind of um, resentful at the beginning. Mm. 
and it's grown into a passive tolerance. It took a long time for her to allow me to buy Shabbat candles. Oh, wow. It took a long time for her to allow me to buy kosher wine because I can't buy kosher meat within an hour and a half drive, mm. but I can buy kosher wine and I can buy kosher dairy. So, and of course, fruits and vegetables, you don't really have to worry about it. So I don't worry about it. But um, as far as everything else, I mean, she passively accepts that I will drive to and from shul once a month. And right now it's not more than once a month because with Shalom Bias, and of course I've had this discussion with my rabbi, we have one family vehicle right now. Mm -hmm. And if I take the vehicle an hour away, I have to leave the house at 8.30 to get there at 10. Mm -hmm. And of course, the service lasts usually till 1.30. And if there's a kiddush afterwards, I might not leave till 2, might not get home till 4. So I have to deprive the family of the family vehicle mm -hmm. for close to eight hours. So with respect to them, I can't go to shul more than once a month. So uh, I go to when I go to shul, she's passively tolerant of the fact that I will go to shul once a month. She's passively tolerant of the idea that I cover my head and I wear a kippah under my cover. She doesn't like my kippah. Um, Is she a Christian? Does she come from a Christian background? Oh, yeah. She's very does devout. She, she's still a worshiper. Does she not leader. know that uh, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus is said to wear talits and tassels? And... It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. She, to her, the tradition is, uh, you know, the Christian tradition is it's considered impolite to cover your head indoors, and especially at the dinner table. Yeah. Whereas except, I started doing the, it almost Except for the Pope and them, they have their little... Yeah, that's it. And, you know, the, one of the first things my rabbi told me is that he said, you know, we cover our heads when we pray, when we eat and yeah. uh, study Torah. And when he said we, I mean, nobody told me to do it. When he said, we, this is what we do, I considered myself as part of the we and i started doing it yeah. and he of course he told me it doesn't have to be a kippah and i said well since i'm converting can i wear a kippah and he said well of course you know since you're converting it's not appropriation it would be appropriation if you were trying to integrate it into a non-jewish lifestyle yeah but since you're converting you can wear it so i wear a kippah under my mm. my hat and i wear a hat over it in public so i don't get you know mm. lynched or, you know, if I don't get attacked because in Quebec, anti-Semitism is very, very high. It's very yeah. rampant. I mean, if there's only one one other Jewish person there, then I can imagine it's, yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, so I'm very careful to cover my kippah when I go out in public. And when I'm at home, I can just wear my kippah, um, especially if my wife is in the other room. And it's a funny thing because I've been wearing a kippah full time since October, mid-October, shortly after the the attacks. I decided, you know, I'm not just going to wear a flat cap anymore. I'm going to wear my kippah just to remind me of who I am and whose I am at all times. And uh, my wife still doesn't like it, but she's starting to get sensitized to it. I'm starting to normalize it step by step. And it just takes baby steps to get people used to it. My my son is used to it. My wife is, I'll, I hope to have her used to it soon. And uh, it's, it's kind of a funny story. I, the other day I was doing dishes and I, was just wearing my kippah and I heard her in the other room and she was coming in. I, my instinct was like, put on your flat cap. She's coming in. And, and you know, my other voice, my inner voice said, no, 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 don't, don't put it on. I want, let her see your kippah. I want her to see the kippah. So she came in, she saw my kippah. She didn't argue. She didn't give, give me a hard time. She just said what she needed to say and left. And, you know, so it has to become a little bit normalized bit by bit, step by step. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I'm at in this transitional phase of being, 
this new reality of being an interfaith household. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're doing your best to manage it. How long have you been married? At this point, uh, a little over 21 years. Okay, good. And when I announced to her that I was converting and I was no longer Christian, it, we had been married over 20 years. And so it was a shock. I had to spend a couple of nights on the couch and, you know, we had some, we had some, some very frank discussions mm. of uh, whether I wanted to divorce her. The answer was no. Whether she wanted to divorce me, the answer was no. Whether she wanted me to leave, the answer was no. Whether I wanted her to leave, mm. the answer was no. So um, a little bit of tension there, huh? A bit. And of course it's, it's a little bit of still there. I won't lie. But, you know, in an interfaith household, I mean, that's that's part of the reality of being in an interfaith household. Mm. You know, when we got married, we had a Christian wedding. Mm. And uh, we, the whole basis of our, even knowing each other, was on the premise of loving Jesus. Oh. And so that's been taken away from her. Mm. And so there's still a little bit of resentment that is still there that comes across mm. from time to time. But she's becoming more and more... Um, I guess, again, using my term, passively tolerant, uh-huh. it's becoming a little bit less aggressive or less resentful with mm-hmm. time. And so with time, it's just going to, uh, it'll resolve itself. And, um, you know, we have the rest of our lives. I mean, hopefully in the next 30 years, I mean, she'll at least be open to visiting the shul maybe once or twice, who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's time. I mean, it takes a while for things to grow on people, I guess. Um, yeah, so, I mean, when I first married my ex, we had a Messianic wedding, and then we went through conversion later, and then we had a Jewish wedding. And since we already had the Jewishness built in, it wasn't so hard, and she kind of went along. Well, she wanted to go through conversion, and so did my son. They both actively chose to do that. Um, so, I mean, it was nice because we were able to do it together as a family. It was wonderful to go to the mikvah with my son. Like that, The mikvah was mm-hmm. a it was a wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. Forever cherish that. Um, I, I don't want to go on too long here. I'm going to ask like a last basic set of question or question. Uh, and this is kind of about, so you're moderator in a few Facebook groups. Um yeah kind of deal with common objections what's the purpose of it what are some of the common objections and stuff that you deal with there and kind of what's your goal behind you know moderating the uh the various groups on you know leaving christianity for torah the you know the other mm-hmm. the the name is like noahide judaism i don't know it's a bunch yeah, of it's judaism noahidism messianism and christianity is the the main group that uh I started, that was the first one I started moderating. It's a, it's an interfaith group where it is basically a, a, it's a Tanakh discussion group where people discuss the Tanakh and Christians and Messianics are welcome to join in the discussion. And so there's a lot of discussion on reconciling the ideas that a lot of Christian ideas are actually New Testament mythology that don't line up with Tanakh. And so there's a lot of Christians that are shocked and offended at the idea that their beliefs are not universally accepted and it's not a, a an echo chamber. And we're not going to wave hankies and yell amen when they say Jesus is Lord. Yeah. So anyway, it's, it's an interesting um, point of view on being a moderator in an interfaith um, context. And I bring my personality with me and my um, 
I guess my experience as a moderator, I've been experience, I've been moderating Facebook forums for over 20 years. Well, not Facebook, but online forums. Even before Facebook existed, I did online forums and I was a moderator going back to the 2000. And so I have a lot of experience with making sure things are civil, making sure that people attack arguments and not each other. Yeah. And so, and I try to bring in my personality in the sense where, you know, I told you in the past, I left Baptist theology for Pentecostal theology. And I became a little bit of a fundamentalist for a while. And I actually had resentment against my former faith, the Baptist faith. And it took, it took me years to get over my resentment toward Baptists. And it took me a while to get over the fundamentalist personality. So when I made the transition from Christianity altogether to Judaism, I had the same focus. I, had, I wanted to keep the same lessons with me. I basically told God, I don't want to be fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. And I don't yeah. want to hold hatred yeah. toward my former faith. Because some, a lot of the people, you know, I can hate the teachings or disagree or strongly dislike the teachings, but I can't hate the people. There's some great people, great sincere people who are just sincerely wrong. And so I try to encourage people to have the same approach in their interfaith dialogue. And I try to demonstrate the same thing. And so when as a Christian, I try to do my best to question, to challenge their arguments without insulting them And of course, since Christians are accustomed to being agreed with all the time, they get offended when their ideas are challenged, often, not all of them, but often, very often, too often, in my opinion, I have to tell them, hey, look, I'm challenging your opinion. I'm not insulting you. And sometimes they'll realize that that kind of making sense. Sometimes they'll just pick up their toys and leave. But uh, my goal in interfaith dialogue is to challenge opinions, challenge belief statements while remaining civil. Because if you push people away, they're not going to listen to the truth. Mm-hmm. If you insult them and mock them, they're going to pick up their toys and leave. They're not going to stick around long enough for to, to hear what you have to say, let alone listen to it and try to make it make sense. And my job as a converting Jew, at least, is to be a light and I can't let my light shine. People are not going to see my light if I'm just making fun of them all the time. A light has, they have to be drawn to it. So I'm not going to mock them as a person. I might playfully mock a belief system or challenge a belief system wow. or a, you know, a faith statement or an opinion. Mm. I might go so far as to call it New Testament mythology, even though they don't like that. <laughs> But it'll make them think, okay, is this really a myth? You know, there's usually, I, I use certain words deliberately to get people to, to provoke thought mm. because God invites us to reason together. And so that's really my whole focus and my approach toward interfaith dialogue in Facebook. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, I mean, you seem to have a pretty balanced attitude there. And um, I mean, um, when I I, I was... I got into Christian apologetics when I was in, you know, involved in Christianity. So I don't know if I ever got to like the fundamentalist phase, but I definitely was into a phase where I was heavily into apologetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I, you know, when I got eventually to the point of converting, 
you know, I got to the point when I converted Judaism, I just want to be a human being. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, I mean, that I enjoy the life that I exist in. And, you know, if the light shines, it shines through. I don't know. The goodness of like me as a person, what I experience as a person versus me trying to convince other people of what I believe. It's very interesting. Like I had no plans to start like this whole podcast blog thing um, because, you know, because I converted 2014. Uh, so it's like 10 years now. Right. <laughs> um, I had no plans of doing this at all. Um, and then somebody because I was engaging, I on you know a few of the forums there just started answering and dealing with questions because I've been to Bible college and ministry and all these things. So I have information in my head. I just wasn't using and I started interacting with people. And, uh, you know, then I, I started getting a podcast interview request and I'm like, OK. And after doing that, then I st then I was talking to other people and, you know, lined up some interviews and stuff. And, um, you know, like my goal in this isn't to convince people of the truth, but to share things I learned on my journey for those interested in going on a similar journey themselves. Whether people do what I do or something differently is irrelevant to me. Like, you know, I've found things helpful on my journey. So if I can share things that are helpful to others on their journey, as they question, look at things through reason, try to have a sound mind, try to be grounded, look at, you know, facts and history, not just what people want to tell us. Um, so, I mean, I've tried to have more of a holistic approach, understand people's emotional, mental state that people are, you know, they, 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 good people strongly believe things they've been led to believe that may, may not mm -hmm. be true. They're good people. They want to do good. It's why they believe it. Therefore, just telling them it's a myth or a lie is, you know, it's it, it's it's a, a challenging thing. Now, sometimes when you state those facts in, in forums, you get like the common thing I see is the character assassinations. They start coming at you pretty hard. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's hard for me to fight my sarcastic urge to say uh, very similar things back to them. Mm -hmm. um, just kind of human nature, I guess. But, you know, in general, I, I'd rather be helpful than harmful. But um. Oh, yeah. One thing you'd, you'd hit on, which I want to hit on as well, is just the freedom. You said that you uh, got into this um, phase where you were into apologetics. And usually apologetics, that usually means missionizing to me, mm -hmm. letting your light shine aggressively to the point where you tell other people how to live. Yeah. Should believe. Yeah. And one of the things that I find so freeing with Judaism is there is no proselytizing. We don't proselytize. We just let our light shine. We just do the right thing. And if somebody is attracted to it and they ask you questions, sure, you answer their questions, but there's no pressure to tell people how to live or what to believe because we're judged ultimately by what we do, not by believing the right thing. So that to me was one of the biggest relief, um, feelings of relief that I've felt in a long time. Just no pressure to have to go out and you know, win souls or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice Love to it. not have to, to, you know, it's funny, you know, they talk about works and the loss. It's nice to not have to work for God yeah. to go out and have to try to convince and convert people. Uh, you know, it's funny how Christianity creates a false dichotomy 
yet they create new works and new laws but that's a different yeah. discussion for another day uh so i want to thank you for coming on here it's been a mm -hmm. good conversation i'm glad we got to connect like this uh is there anything uh you want to say last minute like wrapping up here like um no nothing really to add other than um if if anyone is listening out here um on your podcast and they uh feel like they would like to um consider Judaism as an option if they're not satisfied with Christianity or they see discrepancies that they're not familiar with um, talk to Jeremiah reach out to Jeremiah or reach out to myself reach out to a rabbi um, there is no commitment when you do that it's just reaching out asking questions there's no obligation to become a Jew if you do that and so uh, if you feel like you have questions you see a light that is intriguing um, and you want more information, again, reach out to a rabbi that you know of, reach out to Jeremiah, reach out to myself, we'd be um, answer any questions you may have. All right, great, excellent. Uh, well, thanks for coming on today. Thank you uh, for listening to this episode of the Pulling the Threads podcast. Uh, we're at the uh, pleasure to interview Ben Wagonmaker. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, and follow, and share this podcast everywhere you can. And I want to thank you for tuning in. Have a great day.